This is Science Modeling Talks, a podcast featuring top modeling instructors sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. My guests for this episode are Tonea Hibbler and Ariel Serkin. Ariel lives in Massachusetts and is an active AMTA workshop leader, teaching in-person as well as distance learning workshops. She's a 2019 Massachusetts finalist for the Presidential Award on Excellence in Mathematics Teaching and writes about chemistry education for the ChemEd Exchange and often presents at science conferences. She's a regional rep for the American Association of Chemistry Teachers and she serves as an executive board member for the New England Association of Chemistry Teachers. Tanea lives in Arizona. She earned her master's in teaching earth science and then went on to earn her master's in education from Arizona State University. She began teaching high school science in Arizona. She eventually moved to Asia and in 2009 began teaching in Bangkok for two years and then taught for four years in Shanghai. In 2015, Tanea returned to Phoenix to teach biology and also now serves as a member at large on the board of the American Modeling Teachers Association. Hi, Tanea. Hi, Ariel. How are you? Hi. I'm doing fine. (laughs) Hi. It's nice to be here today. We're really glad to have you here. I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today where we're going to be kind of focusing on the whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm excited too. You guys have posted a wonderful article, a challenging article, I will say, on the uh, modelinginstruction.org site. They have a blog area there called M2M, Modeler to Modeler. And your post was quite intriguing, and I love the fact that the two of you decided to collaborate on it. So, but my first question for you guys is, how did you meet? How did the two of you get connected originally? Tanea and I were in the 2018 leadership training cohort for AMTA. So we had met through the online discussions, and we had some web meetings ahead of time and we met in person at the conference or the workshop in Arizona so I flew from Massachusetts to Tanea's hometown and we spent really in, uh, intense time working and learning together and Tanea was awesome so I was really excited to spend time with her yeah it was it was actually great because I'm I'm a biology teacher so if I hadn't have gone to the leadership training, I probably wouldn't have connected with Ariel uh, the way that I did. And I got to see and experience a little bit about how the physics teachers, um, their concerns when they're teaching their courses, modeling. And then I got to see chemistry. I got to see middle school modelers. And then I also met, um, I think there were a couple other biology modelers there too. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good opportunity just to collaborate with people across different, um, you know, different disciplines. And locations. It was really fun to meet teachers from across the country. I know I'm here in the Northeast, and today you're out there in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Mm. Tanea, how did you first get introduced to modeling? I actually started, I took my first modeling class, was actually a physical science modeling class, because when I first started teaching, I was teaching an introductory science class, and my first year was like the worst year ever. I was pregnant and my father died of cancer that year and I was going to school at nighttime and I felt like I was unprepared to be in the classroom. 
And so I did some research and I found the modeling course um, that was, uh, I signed up through ASU. So I took this course and I felt like it just gave me, um, even though it wasn't biology, it gave me some skills that I needed. And I ended up teaching a physical science class uh, at least one year. And more recently, I moved internationally and then I came back to Arizona. And when I came back to Arizona, I was focused on teaching environmental science and biology. And when I heard about modeling biology, I signed up for the course right away. So I've been um, reintroduced into the modeling community and for about the past three years, maybe four years, and I have delved like headfirst into it. So when the opportunity came up to co-teach a summer workshop, I said, yes, I will do it. Please let me. Wow. That's awesome. Now, both of you have expressed to me a little bit that modeling was a very powerful tool that you found. And so tell me a little bit, each of you, and then we're going to get into the, the equity idea, but, but I'm curious about how would you describe to our listeners that modeling kind of influenced you when you discovered it? You want to go first, Ariel, or you want me to go first? I'll go first this time. You'll go first next time (laughs) for a pair. (laughs) Uh, My path to modeling is different. So this is, I've been teaching since 2001, but I taught history for my first 10 years. So I'm a historian by training. And one of my passions when I taught history was using primary source documentation. So whether it was an actual document or photographs or other political cartoons to help describe things and have students develop an idea of how they could understand what was going on in the world. In other words, they were developing a mental model. I didn't have that language at the time, but that's what I was doing. And when I transitioned to teaching chemistry, I taught the way I had been taught chemistry, a very traditional notes, practice problems, a couple labs as confirmatory labs thrown in. And it wasn't enough. And it wasn't fun. I mean, it was fun. I loved it. I'm a chemistry teacher. And I was always looking to improve myself. And then I found modeling. It was the first time a modeling class had been offered in Massachusetts And I remember on day three, I'm like, oh, okay, this is it. I'm here. I bought in. I'm 100%. I'm here. And it it changed everything from the way I teach it to the way I talk to my child. It's uh, what is the evidence before me says that, no, you did not actually complete your homework. And that's what I look for. I really say that to to him on a regular basis. Um, Well, you told me you did this, but what is the evidence to support that? And it sounds silly, but that's what I do. So the focus isn't on a right or wrong, but what conclusions can we draw? The Socratic approach to child rearing. (laughs) It's so true. But I also found the best people I have ever met. It's, we've talked in the podcast, I've listened to all of them, and so many people talk about community. Yeah. And it's true. I found the best friends that I talk to on a regular basis from across the country who help me be a better educator, who can help me work through problems that I struggle with, can cheer me on on the really good days to push me to think about things harder and they push me to be a better person and help me consider issues that I might not have already thought about. That's wonderful. Tanea? 
I, I would say that I totally agree. One of the things that was hard for me when I started teaching was that I graduated from school, I don't know when, back in 2000. I think on my diploma, it might say 1999, 1998, 1999. Um, I got my degree in biology, but I didn't start teaching until I think it was 2000, 2006, I started teaching. And so there's there was this large gap. And when, when I went to school, in biology, basically, you go into a class, a teacher lectures, you write everything down. Nobody cared if I actually understood everything. It was like, either you know it or you don't know it. And basically, people were memorizing things. And the students who could memorize everything the way the teacher wanted them to, those were the students who got A's. And then those were the students who basically could go off and, you know, whatever path. A lot of people wanted to go to medical school or they wanted to go into um, work in a laboratory or for a pharmaceutical company, things like that. And I just felt like throughout high school, I was discouraged to be in science. I felt like in college, even though I love science and I, I really liked engaging in the process of science, I felt like I was discouraged in college. And my older sister, her graduating with a great degree in biology was really one of the things that kept me going. And sometimes I would, I would call her up and ask her for help. And she would actually try to like talk me through things and try to explain things to me differently um, and tell me to draw things out. And the teacher's weren't really like that. So I knew I didn't want to be a teacher that was like the teachers that I had that I felt were not helping me to, to go where I wanted to go in my life. But I didn't know how to do, like, I just, I didn't know how to do that. And so I, when I got in the classroom, I knew I wanted to do hands-on activities with the kids. I knew I wanted to do a lot of labs but I didn't have a sense of how I was supposed to make all, take all that and make it meaningful. And so modeling, it gave me a really concrete um, framework for how do I work with people and help them to think through a problem? How do I present them with evidence and then allow them to like interpret that evidence? And, and it really even gave me the freedom to not worry about time. Uh, a lot of teachers are worried about getting through so many chapters and, meeting the group of modelers that I met and working with them and um, reading different papers, research articles, going to conferences, it's really uh, confirmed that it's not, what's important is not how much material you get through, but it's the, it's the thought process. It's, you know, can you explain something in your own words? Can you solve a problem? Can you interpret the data? And um, I feel like I'm doing that with my students now. And I feel like I'm seeing kids that are having success. And so, and I feel like I'm getting a lot of support from administrators. And like Ariel said, I have people who don't work at my school who I have these relationships with. And I can talk to them about, you know, the good days. I can talk to them about the bad days. We can share data with each other. We share pictures of like the results of our um you know, oh, this is what my whiteboards look like. Well, what did what did your students draw, or what kind of explanations did you get? Well, how did you do, deal with this um, lab, or how did you deal with that lab, or have you thought about changing this or changing that? And so I have this whole community of people that I can talk to now. We we have webinars, we have a distance learning course that we're doing. I can teach workshops in the summer. I can go present at conferences, and so I'm growing as a teacher. 
I'm helping other teachers grow. I have people that I can talk to. It's just made my job enjoyable again. Like Ariel said, um, the collaborative community is the thing that I hear a lot of people talking about and how important it is to each person's development. I want to jump into the idea of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was challenged when I read the article personally. Mm-hmm. I was challenged and because uh, I've never considered myself as dismissive in any way to any people. But yet, it, you know, seeing the perspective that you presented really made me rethink. Maybe I need to spend a little more time thinking about it. So that's what I hope that in our dialogue today that we can uh, kind of dig into that. And hopefully we can all come out on the other side a little more aware and a little more uh, loving, I guess <laughs> I would say. <laughs> that's a good thing. So, uh, Tanea, I want to, I have a little quote here. You said uh, in that article, you said, when I consider the importance of diversity and inclusion, I'm not engaging in an intellectual exercise that I can step into and then step out of. I'm engaging in the work of creating a safe and a welcome place for myself and others to exist. Yes. My question that, that I'd love to hear you address is, what did you mean when you said you were creating a safe place? What does that mean? What does a safe place look like? I don't know what it looks like, but I know what it feels like. And I know that I don't always feel it. And so if I don't always feel safe to be myself and say what I think or express my feelings or just be me and have my hair out in my big ponytail or Afro or whatever, (laughs) then that means that there are kids that are at our schools who don't feel safe and they don't feel loved and they don't feel appreciated. And, um, I have two black boys that I'm raising. My older son is um, 12. He's going to be 13 soon. And then my younger son just turned eight. And when they come home, their school their school is predominantly, the schools they go to are predominantly white. And sometimes they come home and I realize that they're not going to interact with any other students of color. They um, They're going to have teachers who don't look like them. And if somebody's not invested in embracing them and loving them fully, um, if somebody is not uh, really saying, I'm going to consider that, you know, that the history, not just our traditional curriculum, but uh, everybody's story is part of the American story, then they, they might be coming home and feeling less than what they should feel. They might feel less than instead of feeling loved and feeling embraced and uh, even like a small thing, like doing a, a science project. My son came home. He said he had a science science project. He had to talk about inventors. And I said, well, you're going to pick a black person to do your project on. And he said, well, black people didn't invent anything. I was like, well, who told you that? Oh, I yeah. was like, yeah. I said, and clearly nobody told him that black people didn't invent anything, but no one's telling him what black people have invented. And that's the problem. And, and then, uh, you know, like one of the middle schools in his district had, um, they said they didn't do Black History Month because none of the kids planned anything for Black History Month. So it wasn't like even something of importance to them. And it's those things that um, that I find frustrating. And then I'm the only black woman 
who works at my school. I'm the only black female on staff at my school. I work at an all boys um, Jesuit high school. And I, I, I have had um, many challenging situations in my class with students, or I've had challenging situations with uh, coworkers, or I felt isolated at times. And so I feel like if, if I'm not doing this work, then that means everybody, like, it's never going to change. And I, people don't like talking about race. Some people actually, when we talk about diversity, uh, sometimes people get upset even just talking about diversity and inclusion because uh, people feel like they're being attacked. If you say we, we have to work on this, people think, oh, well, what are you saying? I'm not, I don't care about my students or I'm not doing a good job. And so people don't want to even talk about diversity and inclusion sometimes. And when I got, I got kicked out of the Facebook group because I was trying to reach out to other black educators. You you share that story in the blog, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just like, I have things like this happen to me where I, I go to spaces and I'm the only black person and I'm used to that, but I, I really wanted, I feel like I can be a leader in the science community, and I feel like it's my responsibility to try to draw more people in to help the community be more more diverse. So if I go to a Facebook group and I'm reaching out to try to find other black educators, I don't expect to be attacked by my fellow um, white educators on a, on a site. And I felt attacked, and I spoke up about feeling attacked, and the moderator of the page blocked me and basically kicked me out of the group. And so um, I was just really upset about it because I think that if you are not a black person who is working towards equity and inclusion, you might not even know these types of things are happening. You just might be ignorant that people are experiencing these things. And and these are the types of things that make somebody want to quit and give up. So if I am facing like you know, things at my job that I deal with on an everyday basis and I'm facing things when I go to a conference and I'm dealing with things at my son's school and even dealing with little things like, you know, going to like Home Depot or something like that. Mm. And everywhere I go, I have these issues. Um, it, it, it starts to chip away at your, it can chip away at your mm. spirit. And so to let it not chip away at my spirit I have made a point that I'm going to try to work on making a difference to the extent that I can. And I reached out to Ariel because she's a really good listener. (laughs) And um, she has shown in many ways that she's a really caring person. And um, I just asked her if she would be able to support me and if she would be willing to write and, you know, write, write with me. Um, because I think that she is a, a really good example of um, someone who is trying, who is tries not just by like the words that they use, but by their actions. She, you can tell that equity, inclusion, diversity is important to her. And so I reached out to her after that happened to me. You know, um, I was, I have a quote here from her and she, she and and i really resonated with this and until the last three words but 
<laughs> and you'll understand what I'm talking about. She said, I remember being around people who said things such as, I don't see color, and thought that it was a remarkable way to see the world. I thought that it was the goal of people to get beyond color, and that we were all a part of the same humanity. And I thought, you know, that's kind of how I've kind of viewed the world. And then she says, but I was wrong. Yeah. Ariel. Yeah. I, uh, it took me a long time to come to that. I remember growing up and people saying, oh, can you believe she, she's talking about this boy she's interested in? And she didn't even mention that he was black. Oh, my God, that's so wonderful. She could see his soul and all of that. And, and I thought that was the way. And it was white privilege. Hmm. Somebody's identity is important to them. That is who they are. It is their lived experience. And to deny that, to not see that, means you're not seeing the person. And it took me a really long time to be able to come to that because it wasn't my same lived experience. I did not have the same experience, obviously, but I'm an observant Jew. And for many people, I am one of the first observant Jews who participates in secular society that they've really encountered. Mm. So when, for example, at leadership, they had events on Saturdays, we kind of arranged things because, well, I'm not taking notes. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that because it's the Sabbath and I do things differently. There, one of the organizations I'm a part of has had almost every single meeting on a Saturday. And I said, can we have a day or two that's different? I'm not saying all of them have to be on Sundays, but you're excluding me. And I would like to be a part of this. If you want me on your board, I can't be a part of this if you don't include me. I have experienced anti-Semitism. And I know if I wanted to, I could hide the fact that I'm Jewish. I don't have to wear the star that I wear every day. I don't have to observe the holidays. I don't have to keep kosher. But I do, and it's part of who I am. If I could hide who I am, and I feel put upon at times that I feel these microaggressions, how much more so can people who who cannot, even if they wanted to, hide their identity. Not that they should, because our who we are should be celebrated right. as just part of who we are. And those experiences are important. I, I like to also add, like, it's, and when you say I do not see color, to me, we, we cannot say that because this whole, the whole history of America, it was founded based on, like, what color you were. So if you were, if you were a black person, you were enslaved here Mm -hmm. and that meant you had no rights and it was all about color. And that, that, that created a whole history of like how our country works and what policies were in place and where people could move and where people were afraid to move to and what jobs people could get. And even to this day, Mm -hmm. it still affects people. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, I could, I could tell you story after story after story about like people being limited because 
you know, they had their hair was the wrong way mm-hmm. or they were too, they were too dark. Like I, I, my husband has had people tell him, well, you're, you're too dark. Like, you know, and it's not like we're rich. We don't have lawyers to fight every problem that we face uh, in society. So we just, a lot of people just keep chugging forward. They do what they can do. But if you talk to people, um, and I think in any communities of color, you're going to find that people face uh, challenges. And, and it's because of the history of this country. And so we have to acknowledge that first. Mm-hmm. And then we have to um, talk about it. And then I think teachers, and I, Ariel would agree with me on this one, teachers have a responsibility to educate mm-hmm. and to serve their entire community, not who they want to serve. Right. Uh, and especially uh, public school educators. But I work in a private school and I believe that my private school has just as much responsibility to make sure that kids of color who come to school here, that they are going to be have a safe place, that they're going to be treated and they're going to have an equitable experience just like any other kid. Um, and so if, if teachers cannot acknowledge the challenges of this country and they can not acknowledge differences that exist um, culturally um, amongst people, and they're not going to celebrate people for who they are, and they're not going to think about how their curriculum impacts the students in their classroom mm-hmm. or even impacts the teachers at their schools, um, th- then I think maybe some people need to reconsider like why they're in education. I, I, I feel very, very strongly about that. Uh, I, I believe there's like a very high percentage of, of um, maybe 50% of the kids in public schools are going to be students of color. But most of the teachers in um, public schools are not teachers of color. And a lot of districts are losing teachers of color. And so this is something we need to acknowledge and we need to come up with solutions to the problems that exist. Because when we raise up one group, we raise up everybody. We make the the whole country better. And I know know sometimes sometimes it's it's little small changes, just things that people haven't thought of before that can make a huge difference. And so... We have to have these tough conversations. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable and we have to push to change or nothing is going to change. And I want, I want to think and hope, I don't think hope is enough, but I want to think and I want to hope that, you know, maybe in a hundred or 200 years, um, my great, great grandkids will have a different um, experience than I had or my parents have or my And as a white educator, I need to make sure that not all the pressure is being put on the teachers of color. It is not fair for all the teachers teachers of color, excuse me, to have all the responsibility for trying to upend the system. The pressure that teachers of color face is much different than the teachers that I face. Today, I can't imagine what it's like for for you and your students. Your, student, your two black boys that you say you teach, they must look at you really differently. You're their support system. And as much as you value being that, I'm sure it gets really tiring because you have your own emotional weight that you carry every day. And then you have to take it for your students. And we hear about teachers in urban districts where there's still very few teachers of color and the kids go to them because they understand because they can have that conversation. 
that's why it's so important that people like Tanaya are involved. Yeah. Um, I was really interested in the quote that uh, Tanaya, you from the quote you gave from Robin DiAngelo, mm-hmm. and um, this uh, to our audience, this is a person who wrote a book called White Fragility. And she said, if I'm not aware of the barriers you face, then I won't see them, much less be motivated to remove them. Nor will I be motivated to remove the barriers if they provide an advantage to which I feel entitled. It's an incredible quote. Yes. Um, And go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, so how... How do we work together to to help eliminate these barriers and to open our eyes to see each other, you know? Well, my school had a, we had an assembly where we talked about microaggressions and a a variety of students. It was a student-run assembly, actually. Uh, So students did all the speaking, they did all the presenting, and they, a group of students shared narratives with the entire student body about experiencing microaggressions on campus. And some of those microaggressions were related to the students, um, their race or how they identify. Um, There was actually a lot of pushback from the majority or a lot of the kids in the student body. They said, well, I felt attacked Mm. during that assembly. You're you're calling me racist. The, The word racist was never used during the assembly. People just talk about their personal experiences you know, uh, that they have in, in class or things that they hear or maybe things that they deal with um, in their neighborhood. It was, you know, and so it, I was I wasn't shocked that we got that response, but we did create a couple of spaces on campus where kids could like come together and basically vent and like talk about their feelings and then listen to someone else respond to their feelings and then we did read the book White Fragility, and we did have a book club meeting about that. And there were there were uh, there was a small group that came together and um, talked about the book. But the fact that we have a lot of young white men who felt threatened by students of color expressing their personal stories is an indication that that's just a place to start. And if you don't if you're not talking about these types of subjects and you're not bringing up these discussions, not just outside of the classroom and at assemblies and creating spaces and book clubs, you have to be doing the work in the class. So if kids um, at the first time they hear about white fragility or the first time they're hearing about people of color's experiences or the first time they're interacting with a person of color, if that kid's 16 years old, that's a little bit late. Yeah. You know? So if, if if we had more teachers of color in the uh, elementary schools and we had conversations going on and t- we taught kids how to talk about their experiences and how to listen and empathize at a younger age, I think maybe people would be more um, able to do that, do that at an older age. Uh, but there, I, I do believe that... Uh, White fragility is a big issue, at least at my school, because my school is majority white. Um, And I think that uh, having the conversations is a great start, but we need the science teachers to be talking about race and biology, looking at examining is race biological. 
We need the history teachers to be talking about our history in a way that really embraces different cultures that have all contributed to American society. We need um, the English teachers to be reading novels from different types of authors, women, men, people, immigrants, people from, you know, have different backgrounds. We need it to be at every level, everyone's chipping away and getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. And until we're willing to do that, I don't think um, I don't think anything's going to change. Um, and like I, I would say, like every other every other month, I think about uh, quitting because I sometimes I feel so defeated. Mm. I have um, I'm constantly well. A lot of my students tell me I'm the first black teacher they ever had. And I work in a high school, mm. so that's a little bit sad to hear that sometimes. And I think well, maybe they they have these preconceived notions about what a black woman is and I can't represent all black people for them. But yet I'm probably the only black person that some of these kids are ever going to interact with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause there's a lot of, we, we also need to talk about how America's segregated. Mm-hmm. Our communities are segregated and that, that contributes to the problems housing, you know, the whole redlining thing that happened a long time ago, it still basically defines our communities. And so it, it's really like frustrating for me. So I have, I have kids who tell me um, I've had kids use microaggressions with me in my classroom. I've had challenges having conversations with um, colleagues and trying to talk about how do we implement things in our classroom. So this is why the modeling community is so important to me. So I go outside um, of my school to find people who are comfortable having these conversations and they're willing to say, let's talk about how we could do this. How could we talk about race and biology? You know, um, let's go present and talk about, you know, how you can use modeling instruction to really be inclusive within your classroom. Mm -hmm. So it's frustrating. And yeah, every day I, I have these challenges that I'm dealing with and I have low points, but I have high points sometimes too. And I do feel like I'm building some great relationships with students at my school. And I also feel like I create a safe space for a lot of kids in my classroom. Yeah. When you were talking about how different classes in the school could engage in helping to create more inclusive approaches, you did not mention chemistry or physics. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a bunch of our... A bunch of our listeners are are chemistry and physics teachers, and you got one sitting there with you, with Ariel. And I, I'm really if I hear one more teacher say to me, "Well, in physics is physics. We don't need to do that in physics." That is, can I say BS? That's BS. That's garbage. <laughs> no, you have to think about it. Like even you, if you want to talk about like inventions, or you want to talk about um, different scientists, or you want to bring people to your classroom who look differently, or maybe even just trying to ask the kids, hey, what do you guys want to do? Who, what do you care about? What would you be interested in? Hmm. You know, it, it, sometimes it's a, it's the small things that can make someone feel welcome. Look at your syllabus. Look at the language you're using in your syllabus. <laughs> can you change some of the language that you're using? Is it intimidating certain groups of students? Do you have policies that benefit some students and they hurt other students. 
and if you're all about, well, we've done it this way and we're always going to do it this way, well, then it's going to be really hard to have a conversation with you. You have to be open and be willing to listen and try something new and really see, can it make a difference for these kids that I have? And if you want to make a difference, I think you'll be willing to do something. Yeah. Uh, whether you're a physics teacher or a chemistry teacher, it doesn't matter what you teach. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter the style that you teach. It, it matters that you, it's the intent behind what you do that, what matters. So if you have uh, the right intent, intentions, and you're willing to go pick up a book and read a book, maybe read 10 books, and you're willing <laughs> to go to some conferences and meet some different people mm-hmm. and talk to different people uh, and talk about what were the challenges that you had? You know, you're a, you're a chemist. You're a chemist. What challenges did you have becoming a chemist? There's a podcast that's called, um, is it? story to story oh there's um, there's great podcasts where you can share with your students about people's path to getting to where they you know to getting to become a physicist or a chemist or whatever you can share that type of stuff with your students to show hey we all don't have this straight and narrow path that we walk to end up here and there are people who've had a really really tough time but they found success and i'm going to share that story with you i'm going to show you that i care about that mm-hmm. And that you care about the student. My wife always says, you know, your kids aren't going to care. Your students aren't going to care until they know that you care about them. And this, I think it's interesting that in the classroom, if you have a really diverse ethnic collection of students, you make sure you don't unintentionally create exclusion. By only letting certain groups of kids talk who might be more inclined to talk. Sometimes it's that quiet one that has a brilliant insight, you know. So anyway, I want to ask you, Ariel, how how do you work in bringing inclusivity into your classroom? It's a really important topic, and I'm going to answer that. There's something I think is really important to add is that when Tanea was talking about her students and their responses to the conversation about microaggressions, students automatically went to, I'm not racist, or that was so racist. We need to detach a judgment value from the word racist. Somebody who exhibits racist beliefs doesn't make them a bad person. You have this feeling, you have perpetuate a system. So now let's work to address it. If we automatically think racism is bad, nobody wants to consider themselves bad. So they're not going to be racist. So that's not the issue. So I'm not a bad person. So therefore, I'm not racist. So therefore, I don't have to deal with this. Right. And that has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So ways that I work for inclusivity in the classroom, there are a variety of them. And I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. We can do, and I've done things such as Scientist of the Week, it's not even it's something you have to do as a presentation. You could just have a poster up, a scientist of the week of the month, and highlight a scientist who is a chemist, if you're like me, chemistry teacher or a physicist, somebody who has used chemistry or physics or biology or other sciences in their everyday life. And I would highlight people of color and women and people from other countries as well. So it's not just... Uh, Europeans, you have people from all over and their accomplishments and their achievements need to be addressed. 
And so sometimes as simple as that, because that representation in the classroom matters. So if you just have posters of all the famous scientists and they're all dead white men, what image are you showing all your students? Sometimes it's little things. If you are writing problems and you put people's names in them, if you're only using John and David and Sarah or Jennifer, people have an idea of who you're talking about. They often automatically go to a white person. Include different ethnicities in your names. I also encourage people to consider using they as a singular pronoun for your non-binary students. It's a really easy little fix and it's just a way of representation in the classroom. Other ways I've worked on it or and things that I encourage people to do is consider how you group your students. When I first started teaching and I would try and group my students, I would intentionally separate the few students of color because I didn't want to feel I was singling them out without realizing I was singling them out. So have conversations with your students, especially if there's only a couple of students, what makes them the most comfortable? There have been enough research to show that even within groupings, that students of color are not given the opportunity to access lab equipment, to participate, or assumptions are made that they did not do the homework. There's no reason for it, but those are the assumptions from other students. So ways to address this in the classroom are you can intentionally assign roles to make sure that everybody has to do something to participate. So they're not being dominated, whether it's students of color, whether it's your female identifying students, your quieter students. I assign roles on a daily basis, whether it's your whiteboarding that problem or this one is presenting. And I give students time to talk and have those conversations so they're not doing it individually. I remove students' names from their whiteboards. That way the focus is on the data and not on the person, because sometimes people will be more likely to critique a person of color, they'll be more likely to critique a female student, or they will be less likely to critique someone who they think knows the answer, whether they do or not. It's that impression. So by removing the names, the focus is on the data. And that has actually been some really positive changes that I've seen. Hmm. And not letting things slide. It's really easy as a teacher to pretend you don't hear things because you don't want to engage. You can't let that happen. And I'm not saying you have to go after a student, but talk to them. If we're talking primarily about high school students, and I know we have some middle school teachers here who listen as well, we talk to the student, have them consider what they said, and help them see why it's a problem. Whether it's, I have students who have used um, a derogatory term to describe people of Romani descent. Like, and it's, that's a racial slur. And people don't know, they're corrected, and they, they try not, and they do, don't do it again. Some people have had to correct multiple times, but I don't let it go. And sometimes they don't do it intentionally. They do it out of ignorance. In my school, in Massachusetts, 
I have students who wear Confederate flag shirts and Confederate flag belt buckles. I have conversations about that is not going to be okay in my classroom and what messages that says. And some people say it's freedom of speech. I put my students at being able to feel safe in the classroom above wearing a t-shirt. I also, at my school, I'm one of the teachers who has helped form a multicultural club. And it's small because there are not so many students of color at my school. But the kids who have come, we've had some great conversations. We've had uh, potlucks where we talk about different food from different cultures. And that's been actually really fun. And it's become a safe place for those students to be able to come and be themselves in a place where they don't always have that opportunity to do so. And I let my name get out there that who I am and what is acceptable in my classroom and what is not acceptable in my classroom. And the kids know. And they adjust their behaviors. And I hope that they will take the lessons and be able to move it forward as they go on in life. So uh, I, I remember you mentioning that you had uh, even begun to look at how the curriculum that is yeah. used can bring in biases, maybe perhaps unintentionally. You want to speak to that? <laughs> I'll let Ariel go ahead and answer that, but I, I, it's just, it's really challenging. Um, the curriculum, there are biases everywhere, everywhere, huh. everywhere we go, but we have to consider like, who were the people who made um, most of the laws? Who wrote the Constitution? Like, you mm -hmm. know, who, who has been developing policy in this country? And so it's always from a certain perspective. And usually that's a when we're looking at a lot of work or a lot of things, it's usually a white male perspective. And me as the only black woman at my school, when I go somewhere, I always know that I'm going to have 90% chance I go into a meeting, I'm going to be coming with a different perspective. Hmm. And that's, that's something that I always have to like brace myself um, to deal with. So that's a heavy load to carry. <laughs> when it comes to the curriculum and this just really plays off of what Tanea was saying, when we look at the frameworks or the, learning standards. People think when it comes to science, and, and likely I think more so in the physical sciences than in the biological sciences, because people say, oh, well, chemistry is chemistry and physics is physics, right? Race isn't involved. These are just the scientific principles. With biology, you might get a little more of race when you're talking about genetics. People tend to feel that's at least a place they can talk about it. But People pretend it doesn't exist. So sometimes it's as simple as, and none of this is simple, of whose names are we giving to places and people? Why are we referencing all these white male European scientists? Are you really going to tell me that not a single woman, not a single person of color, not a single person in another part of the world was doing experiments? And people believe that. Wow. People believe that. 
So it is important to work that in. If you don't know about underrepresented curriculum, there are ways of looking at underrepresentation, specifically in sciences. Uh, step up for women is a, a step up, excuse me, is no longer step up for women. Step up program is also about looking at different ways of including people, specifically in physics. And this is the type of outreach that we are currently working on. And I know I'm not doing a good enough job. We look at math and people say, well, math is math. Math is pure. But math is for everyone. And if we want to talk physics and we want to talk chemistry, this idea that of the gatekeeping that we do and we keep our students of color in particular from taking these higher level science classes because somewhere in earlier in their education, they did not get a certain math class or they've been tracked a certain way. They don't have access to it. So these are the type of policies and curriculum that prevent students from being able to access and move on. When we say, well, if you don't have algebra two by this point, that means you can't take advanced physics. And if you don't have physics, you're not going to get into this particular college program. And when people say, hey, let's not offer our students algebra two, it's too hard for them. We are closing opportunities. Hmm. Yeah. And if we have, if you look at like the graduation rate for black people or Hispanic people, you look at the rate of people, um, like how many astrophysicists are you going to see, like that are people of color? Or if you look at the, if you look at PhD programs, like how many students of color are getting into particular PhD programs in chemistry or biology, just the numbers on their own, let us know that we're doing something wrong. Like mm -hmm. we have to change whatever we're doing. It's not working for everybody. So we might want to change what we're doing. And more likely than not, it's not changes are not going to hurt anybody. They're just going to bring more people in. And if as a country, like we, we don't have enough people in a lot of these, we can't find, mm -hmm. there's many, many jobs that we're not filling. We can't fill, like we can't find anybody for these jobs, like these tech jobs and everything we need to bring more people in. We need to start making sure that we're educating the students here and that we're giving them these opportunities because we need it. We need people to do these jobs anyways. Um, for me in particular, I am focusing on race and biology. So I start off the year with classification and characteristics of life. And I move into populations and ecology. And then my third unit is evolution. So at the end of evolution, I, uh, we talk about the evolution of skin color in humans, and then we talk about whether or not race is biological. And then second semester, I'm doing my growth of cell growth and division unit. And after we finish meiosis, I ask the students again, um, now that they understand how sex cells and gametes are formed um, and how you form a zygote, then I ask them again, well, now with a little bit more background, can you tell me, um, is race biological? Like, what does it mean to be a black person? What does it mean to be a white person? Try to answer that question with the information that you've been given. And then we'll do our genetics unit and I'll come back to it again. Uh, 
what I found is that students can be told that race is a social construct, but if they've grown up in a society where race defines everything hmm. and race is important, not, not because someone's saying it's important, just because of how they see it affects someone's lives, that they have a really hard time letting go of the idea that race and biology, they, they really think that race and biology go hand in hand. And we have all kinds of great conversations. The kids ask me great questions. And the best part is I tell them, I, I, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm asking you to think about why you think what you think. And so they're forced to kind of wrestle with their thought process. And ultimately, the goal is, is that I'm not producing students that are going to hold on to racist ideas and concepts and then be a part of a racist system that is going to hold groups of people back. And so hmm. uh, I think if all teachers were working towards that end, we could push against racism a lot better than what we're doing now. We read this book at my school called Everyday Anti-Racism. Fantastic. It has lots of um, ideas and lessons. It's like essays, mm -hmm. so you don't have to read it all at once. That book was great. Um, how to be anti-racist. Ibram Kendi's book, fantastic. Yeah. And I read White Fragility. I'm reading a lot of books and um, I go on Twitter a lot and talk to different people too. It's a great place to vent, by the way. It's, it is. If you send me a reading list, we'll post it on the website so that when okay, people yeah, go to I'll the yeah. website, they can see, they can get a transcript of our dialogue and they can also get other resources that either of you can share with me and we'll post them up there for people to... Uh, get a hold of so today have you read grading for equity yet i you know what i have not read that one i just uh, got it I, I already know i have thought about that deeply i know and just thinking about like how we grade i'm like mm, mm -hmm. i i probably am doing a disservice to, to a lot of my students and i i kind of feel like my whole school needs to have that conversation um it's a deep conversation to have we're at least talking about the schedule now. We're talking about changing our schedule and making that a little bit better. So. <laughs> I agree with Tanea that I've also found Twitter has been a really useful place for me to engage with other educators, both at the secondary level and at the college level, who are having these serious conversations. And I, I know people on this podcast have talked about Twitter before. It's been fantastic for me as a place for professional growth and development and to really work through issues, whether it's pedagogy or race, anti-racism, equity for students with abilities in the classroom, uh, anti-Semitism. It's been a really useful place to do that. Mm. And there are really very many passionate educators out there who are happy to share and work through issues together. We're not saying this is easy. We're just saying it has to be done. And it's our responsibility as educators to do this. We are doing all of our students a disservice, not just our students of color. We're doing our white students a huge disservice if we don't address it with them. If we don't change how they are talking to each other and how they are talking with people and how they can help dismantle a racist system, we are failing them just as much as we are failing our students of color. Mm. 
And I've also had coworkers who've pushed back against uh, anti-racism, not because they are, again, bad people, but they might not see it. They believe in a meritocracy without realizing that a meritocracy is really just perpetuating a system. And what a shame to have a system that just by default in the history of segregation and all this that dismisses these brilliant minds that could be going into the STEM system. It could be growing and becoming thought leaders. It could be growing and providing the the kinds of uh, important work that's needing to be done in our world with its deep dependence on technology and, and the sciences. And there's so much there that we're losing resources. And uh, I, I want to uh, just commend you two for your boldness and for stepping up. And, and, you know, we have a platform here with the modeling community. And these are influencers. The modelers, I find, are just amazing people and, and uh, mostly have this great intent to be the best teachers they could be for their students. And this is a part of learning that. I totally agree with you. I'm going to, I'm going to put out a little request to all the modelers that are out there. Go for it. So I, I went to the AMTA conference, um, the national conference this uh, last year, and I'm going to go again this year and I'm leading a workshop this year. So I'm, I love my modeling community, but I'm going to ask that if you know a teacher of color, you know, a person of color and they're in science education or they're a middle school teacher who teaches math and science, try to bring them into our community Hmm. because we need our community to be more diverse so we can go Mm -hmm. back and start reaching into communities that we are not yet touching. And I think that it will help us to grow as a community. Um, It will help us to become sustainable and we can be changing the lives of a lot of um, young people. So try to stretch beyond um, those people that you normally talk to and talk to someone that you haven't talked to before and maybe actually go talk to someone that you don't know at all Mm -hmm. or go to a school where you don't know anybody and try to bring them in (laughs) because we need to start with us. We really can't pay people to to work at something and to change if we're not willing as a community to do those things ourselves. And I'm going to add one more thing. We've had conversations within the modeling community and some people say, oh, because we're modelers, we're automatically equitable. Don't get lulled into thinking because we as modelers promote student discourse that it necessarily makes it equitable for all students. We have to be intentional about creating a safe, inclusive, and equitable place for all of our students and all of our learners and all of our teachers. That's awesome. So, hey, listen, I'm going to ask you guys one final question and have you each share unrelated to the inclusion discussion. What's your best modeling instruction tip, advice that you would give right now? (laughs) And then we'll close with that. I would say... You have to be willing to let go of the preconceived ideas that you have in your head about what it means to be a teacher. And if you give yourself the freedom to let go and 
you're willing to try something new in your classroom, you probably are going to fall in love with modeling instruction. And your students, if they haven't fallen in love with you already, <laughs> they're probably going to fall in love with you too. Oh, I love that. I don't know if I can follow up nearly as well, but reach out and ask for help. The modeling community is there to help you, whether it's working through a concept that you thought you understood, and then you go to teach it and realize you don't has, have as deep an understanding as you initially thought, or if you have a really great way that you want to, that you did something in the classroom, you want to share it, reach out to other people. It makes your teaching better. It makes other teachings better. And all students will benefit. Awesome. Tanea, Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Mark. So um, send me any um, resources you want to share with the listeners and, and uh, we'll post it on the site. So thanks again, you guys. It's been great talking to you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and type our guest name in the search box. The episode page will pop right up. There you'll find any extra content that was mentioned during this interview. So until next time, keep striving for excellence in the classroom.